Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 163 of Impact Room. My name is Steve Williams, and I'm the Social Innovation Program Manager at CQ University. And I'm passionate about all things social innovation and enterprise. Today, we're recording from CQ University's Brisbane campus at one of our Lunch and Learn sessions, where we're speaking with Anya Lim, Princess Ant, co-founder and managing director of Antil Fabric Gallery in Cebu, Philippines. Anya works passionately on weaving culture, tradition and business through community entrepreneurship. She's a multi-award-winning entrepreneur and studied in Australia as an international student in 2012-13. She's currently in Brisbane courtesy of the Australian Awards at Export Council of Australia and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. On today's podcast, we'll discuss Anya's journey as the Managing Director of Antil Fabric Gallery and how she started her social entrepreneurship journey, her connections to Australia and her advice for students seeking to be change makers. Before we start the interview, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we are meeting. In the spirit of reconciliation, CQ University recognises that it's meeting on country for which the Turrbal and Jagera people are traditional custodians. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and future, for they hold the memories, traditions, culture and hopes of Indigenous Australia. Anya, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us why you're here in Brisbane. Right. So I've been very fortunate to be among um, 15 women will be participating in an intensive short course on women training globally. So there's two Filipina, so two of us representing the Philippines, and it's a program concentrated for Southeast Asia, and it's sponsored by the Export Council Australia Australian Awards and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Great. Before we unpack Antil, tell us a little bit about your expansion program. Right. So this program is actually very timely as Antil is also working on uh, putting our Philippine textiles in the global map. And we're working on expanding our reach and distribution. And so I'm really interested to learn more on how we can tap the international market through this program. Thanks. So tell us about Antil. What, what is the core problem that the enterprise seeks to address? Right. So um, as Steve mentioned, Antil is based in Cebu, Philippines. We're not in the capital. Um, and it's actually a, a very long acronym. It stands for a very long acronym. It means Alternative Nest and Trading or Training Hub for Indigenous or Ingenious Little Livelihood Seekers. Very long. So we are a social and a cultural enterprise that works primarily on addressing cultural degradation as an issue, particularly the death of um, 
weaving as a living tradition and also the lack of uh, employment opportunities in the countryside. And so the way we address this is by applying our weaves into contemporary and circular design in order to create that market demand and provide sustainable livelihood for our partner communities. So as an example, what I'm wearing today is actually hand-woven um, by one of our enterprise partners. It's an indigenous tribe called Abra. And um, the pattern is very symbolic. Uh, it, it says to drive away bad spirits. If you look at the binacle pattern, it has an optical illusion to it. And they, they say it has a dizzying effect to bad energy. Not that there's bad energy here, but I'm wearing it today for that. So yeah, that's basically what Ant Hill um, is in a nutshell. Thank you. And I know the podcast listeners can't see this, but right. I'm also sporting an ant yeah, scarf, so which I've had many years. So it also has longevity as well. It's not just a flash in the pan fashion. Right. So tell us a bit more about your background then. How, how did you go down the path of social enterprise? What, what led you to that path? Yeah, a lot of things, uh, a lot of life experiences um, connected the dots to that led me to social entrepreneurship. But I think it really all started because apart from um, growing up in a family business, both my parents are also entrepreneurs. But more than that, they had such huge, I mean, they have such huge love for, for country and culture. And that really was inculcated in the way uh, we were raised as children. So I'd always tell the story. Summers were spent uh, immersing ourselves, we're traveling to different indigenous tribes in the Philippines. And there was this one particular summer where my mom took us to, to visit an indigenous tribe. And it was in the uplands of northern Philippines. And to me, since I grew up like listening and hearing about these stories as if they were, you know, characters in my storybook or my version of Disney princesses. When we went to the community, it just made me feel so alive to witness everything in that story come to life. You know, I would always say it was like Disneyland for me. And so I witnessed like a, a culture, a village thriving with women weaving and, and them uh, celebrating their culture and men carving and just really a very communal spirit and such positive energy among the community. So after it was very, it was a very significant experience that after I finished uni, my brother and I decided to go back and visit the same village. And then sadly, it became a total ghost town and no one was there. Like it was literally like dead, gone. And so we were intrigued and we asked around the neighboring villages, whatever happened to that um, particular village. And they said everyone decided to become tour guides. It was very close to a a UNESCO heritage site, uh, the Rice Terraces. So they decided to pursue like um, an easier, uh, uh, accessible source of income. So that was really very disheartening. You know, I, I would always consider that like a social awakening that a problem does exist. And I considered it my first social pain um, to witness firsthand a death of a culture that to me was very personal because it, it was, it was what my childhood was all about. I was very fascinated by all these, not just characters, but they were Filipinos. They were the first Filipinos. So from then on, um, 
it made me very curious to learn more about why uh, there was no there was no compelling force for young women or the younger generation to pursue celebrating their culture. So I traveled for a year around the Philippines and in every indigenous village that we visited, it was exactly the same problem. We, they, were left, they were left with only elder weavers weaving and there was a gap in cultural transmission and the continuity, not just in living traditions, but in every aspect of their culture and heritage. So there was a poverty of identity, I would say, among the younger generation because of a lot of colonial influence. But looking on the other spectrum, the reason why a lot of young women did, did not want to learn the craft, aside from it being very difficult to learn, was also because it didn't put food on the table. There was not enough market demand. Sadly, then, about 10 years ago, Filipinos deemed or perceived for it to be uncool to wear handwoven fabrics because they were already used as face mats, table runners, bed covers, and, and curtains and whatnot for home upholstery. And so women would think, why would I weave uh, something that has no demand in the market and also as a as a consumer as a customer why would i wear a placemat so they just found it so uncool to do that so we wanted to address that gap uh, we wanted to find solutions on how we could bring that back um, historically uh, our ancestors considered this as a heart woven cloth and they consider it their second skin. And I, I think that's so beautiful that what they wear equates to their identity. And so why is it that um, in this generation, we don't wear it with pride? And I thought that was very sad. Mm. And could you just going back a little bit, tell us about your experience in India and how that influenced you in your journey of social entrepreneurship? Right, so since my mom also runs a textile business, we would uh, go to India and um, source fabrics there as well. And I was really very drawn when I was, I was very drawn to Gandhi. And when I visited uh, the Gandhi Museum and the Gandhi House, I learned more about the Khadi movement or the movement of handwoven cloth. And it was such a very influential experience, a very significant experience to me because um, I learned about how Gandhi used the charcoal or the loom as a pathway to peace, as a tool to make um, people in the rural communities uh, become empowered and a tool to be self-reliant and to become self-employed. So in that, in that manner, that influenced me a lot when I thought about our business model. How can we make the weavers in the rural communities, in the upland communities, in the far-flung areas, realize that there's so much resources and potential already where they are at? They don't have to migrate and seek greener pastures in the urban communities. They just have to value what was once undervalued which is their craft and tradition. Mm -hmm. Thank you, it's so fascinating. I love that story. And so you've told us a little bit about, um, about the problem and that inkling of a solution, how you can bring a, a business focus to solve, help solve some of those problems for those traditional weavers and 
traditional villages. So tell us a little bit about your business model and how you've actually addressed it and where you've gone over, say, the last five years. Right. So um, the way we work is we run an ecosystem business model and we have five major stakeholders working on really reviving the weaving industry in the Philippines, which is our, our mission. So we have a very important requirement for us, the Enterprise Development Program. Um, second, we have our textile partners, and here our interaction is merely sourcing materials from them. These are more established nonprofits, cooperatives, and associations. And um, we also influence their product design and innovation. And then third, of course, um, Ankil isn't an expert on design, and so we love collaborating. We work with a lot of design collaborators that help us elevate the value for weaves and you know, turn them into things that are so creative and innovative. And then fourth, we also work with a lot of um, uh, production partners. So these are seamstresses, tailors, shoemakers, bag makers, and which is also sadly like a dying industry in the Philippines. And we're trying to also help revive that. And then finally, of course, our customers are what we call our proud weave wearers. So all these stakeholders make up our ecosystem model. And it's really imperative that we have a solid foundation and we all work together in achieving our, our goal. Um, so we have uh, four different revenue channels. We work with a lot of business-to-business -business transactions, business-to-consumer transactions, so that's corporate retail. And then recently, we launched our e-commerce platform, so that's another um, marketing or revenue channel. And then we do a lot of um, pop-ups and events locally and internationally as well. So that's basically it. Um, the way we sort of grow the business is in the first few years, for I'd say first five years, we invested so much in really building the capacity of our community partners. We were very uh, hesitant or fearful of uh, going out there in the market unprepared. So we had to invest in a lot of community development and community organizing, and that was where we run the program. The program has um, five courses, and this is also what directs our level of intervention in the community. So first is cultural appreciation. So I think it's our way of doing values formation in the community and really deepening the sense of purpose of why they weave and understanding what's the relationship of weaving in their personal lives, in their culture, in their tradition, in their identity. And then we go up and level up into influencing them in their product design and innovation. And this is also how we build or establish trust in the community, right? So all the patterns are indigenous to them. And we have to seek out their permission. Are they open to exploring other colors that are not traditional? Um, we have to make sure that's not disrespectful to their culture. Um, and so from there, like we influence them and say, these are the colors of the season. Are you open to weaving um, like pastel colors or neon colors? And it's pretty interesting and fascinating. So we would show them the color wheel, just very tiny interventions, right? And 
in the past they'd only know the basic colors, red, blue, green, yellow. And then once we try to show them um, different color swatches and all Pantone colors, now this time around when we asked for an order and we asked for say a blue, they would know the range of blues and they'd ask, uh, do you want a teal blue, a navy blue, you know, a sky blue? So little little innovations, but really to them it's so empowering to have that knowledge. Yeah. So it's interesting. But could you say something then about the the impact? Like you talked about how you measured impact. So you know we've just heard there about how people are actually earning money now because they're selling to you or buy you, and um, they're starting to innovate in terms of you know color choice or material choice. Right. But what about as in a material sense for the people that you uh, are purchasing from the weavers themselves? What is the impact that's been created? Right. So. Um, with our business model, 80% of our profits are actually reinvested back into the program because the program is the anchor of what makes us grow. So I think it just makes sense that we reinvest that in the production capacity and in the well-being of the weavers. So just to put it, I think, in context, um, before Ant Hill's partnership, an average weaver would, say, earn about 3,000 pesos um, on a monthly basis. And because of our partnership, we have grown their income to about 10,000 pesos on a monthly basis. So that's like more than 50% of, of income growth. And now, because we have a financial literacy and savings program and we've worked with a microfinance partner, they also have access to loans and insurance. And interestingly, because they've already um, acquired an entrepreneurial mindset, most of the investments or the loans that our weavers apply for are really to pursue other businesses, other enterprises. So just to give an example, um, a weaver in Abra, one of the communities that we work with that weave uh, this fabric, uh, invested and applied for a loan so that she can grow her poultry business. So she raises pigs and goats and they use the milk and they use everything else. Um, they also, one of our uh, doll makers in Cebu applied for a loan to buy a, uh, an oven so she can bake at the same time, uh, make the dolls. Mm. So in that sense, like they're able to really sort of have a bigger vision yeah. of um, how they can use and maximize their income and not just live for the day. Yeah. yeah. And so I've heard you speak before as well about unintended consequences of your actions. So would you like to say something about when you uh, grew the business and you kind of scaled into Manila, but then there were some unintended consequences for the weavers and that's a really interesting story. Right. Um, so in so in social entrepreneurship, of course, profit is very important. Like we are for profit. Um, and that's one of the ways we can be sustainable. And so scaling up is a big external pressure. And the demand for our weaves was in the capital in Manila. And so when we were able to um, have an opportunity to expand our distribution there, uh, we were so happy about it. And we asked the weavers to work double time and increase so we can increase our inventory. But then sad, with this in mind, we thought this is going to be good. Like we're going to increase their income. We're going to increase the number of weaves. 
and this is going to open more opportunities and more membership will come into the community enterprises. So come year end, we were back in the community and we did an assessment and we, we, want, we were so excited to like do a rundown of the level of income and how much their income went up and how much their savings went up. They were really happy. But then one mom, one mother raised her hand and said, you know, we're really happy about all these improvements and all these developments and how we're expanding the market and we're growing our, our production. But I think you're forgetting that before we are weavers, we are mothers first. And I was telling Steve, to me, that was really such a humbling, humbling line. And I consider that one of our very first failures, our failure to listen and to acknowledge our stakeholder and what for them is the definition of success. We were defining success in our own terms, forgetting that what is successful to us may not be successful to them. We were limiting our metrics in terms of numbers and the way, I guess, what other people or other stakeholders expected to be. But we forgot the very reason why we started Anthill in the first place. And so from then on, that was around 2015, it was game changing. It changed the way we made, we make decisions. And now that experience really anchored us back into our values. And now every time we make business decisions that involves impact or scaling, we always go back to that line. Our weavers are mothers first. And what's more important for us besides profit or margins is how we can create an enabling platform that can make our weavers become better mothers. Mm, fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic story. Um, so just to change tack a little bit, when we first met in, I think, 2012, yeah. you were um, an international student doing a master's in communication for social change. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of being an international student in Australia? Yeah, um, I was, so Australia and my experience here um, has a lot of significance in the work I do back home. Um, I think as an international student, you come here and it has to be very intentional, you know, very intentional as to why you're here, considering you only have so little time to study. So when I came to Australia, I really had the intention to learn and to really immerse myself in different organizations and institutions where I can gain best practices and bring it back home. So my course was in the social sciences, but towards the end of the, the program, I really wanted to uh, take on a course in social entrepreneurship and social innovation. So even if it wasn't allowed as an elective to cross enroll to another um, school, I actually took the initiative to write to the dean and request if I can take an elective in another school just because I wanted to um, network in the social enterprise uh, sector here in Australia. Um, so I think that's it. Like It's very important to have an intention or that sense of purpose as to why you're really here for and also to have initiative to immerse yourself in other circles. One of the things that I also did was I tried to move away from my comfort zone and there's so much Filipinos here, they're a very active community and I love hanging out with them. But during the week, I'd spend more time with my classmates from different countries and you know, it's, 
Australia is very diverse and there's just so much to learn from different cultures and different professions. So I do that a lot of a lot of times and I attend different events and, and, and talks like this, learning sessions like this. Um, and one of um, a talk that I attended, uh, Susan Black, who's the, then the director of Social Ventures Australia, was a speaker and I was very drawn to, to what they do. Um, and so I took the initiative to to email her. So I write a lot of cold emails, you know, just wanting to have coffee with people that I think I'd learn from. So yeah, I emailed her and um, I asked if I could intern with them. And they actually didn't have an existing internship program then. It was probably the first and the last intern. Um, and that's how I met Steve. So uh, Seed and uh, Australian Indigenous Youth Academy, sorry, Aboriginal Indigenous Youth Academy was then one of their clients. And I worked with Steve. And also at the time, I was seeking for a lot of mentors. And, and Steve became one of my very good mentors. And um, yeah, just, just immersing with different social enterprises really made me apply what I learned in school. So it became like my creative laboratory. And from then on, I was able to sort of like test it out, test the ideas out in Australia and see how it will also work back home if I contextualize it there. So that was really fascinating because I feel like, okay, I had my I had my own laboratory here and then and then I could explore it back home. Mm -hmm. um, that's, yeah. That's fantastic. So and um, I should say that you know I learned as much or if not more, way more from you than I'm sure that you did from me. But um, there's a really nice example of when you worked at Seed. So Anya did a, uh, an internship, as she just said, at Seed, but then we um, realised what an amazing person she is, so we ended up employing her for some communications work. So Seed is a social enterprise in northern Brisbane that works to employ people from disadvantaged backgrounds as landscape maintenance gardeners and commercial cleaners. Um, and Anya devised this amazing communications campaign, which maybe just spent you know, a, a minute yeah. talking about. So yeah, the, uh, it was a growing, growing seeds of change campaign. So we really wanted to engage uh, the different members to own their own voice and tell their story. And so since the work was on landscaping and gardening, we had a like a, a photo campaign where they would just um, show their hands and hold up the logo and have a like a placard that says, I'm growing the seed of black. So just really honoring the value of the voice of each and every um, member in that community. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm happy that um, Steve mentioned that up until now that, that campaign or those materials are still up and running. But, yeah. And, yeah. and also we went out not just to staff, but also to community members, to yes. MPs and everybody. Right. There was this amazing kind of photo journalism piece, really, where people would hold up these chalkboards and said, I'm growing the seed of whatever it might be, inclusivity or employment or love. You know, it's just a really beautiful thing. And then we had a great launch. We had a launch. We had a photo exhibit. And yeah. um, people were very proud and happy to see their photos up there talking about how they're contributing to the social impact. Yeah. yeah. So just to wrap up, would you have any advice for any of our listeners on the podcast or any of our students here at the university 
who were interested in starting a social enterprise, but they, they just don't know how to start or where to start. What right. would your advice be? Yeah, starting is always a, a tough one. Um, I'd, I'd always say that you'll never be ready until you're there. Like, there's really no sense of um, preparedness, I think. Like, no matter how much you prepare for it, no matter how much business plans you write or you draft, um, the only way to start is to just do it, really, to just jump in there, take the leap, and just do it, and take the risk. But I think what's also very important, and this is so cliche, but it still is, I think, very foundational, is for you to really be able to understand why you're doing what you do, the deep sense of purpose. And for any enterprise, no matter social or not, it's so important that you're able to clearly identify what is the social issue or market need or market demand that you're addressing. Like identify that gap. Um, there has to be a clarity of purpose because if it's not clear to you what you're trying to solve, then it will be very difficult for you to come up with solutions. Um, also, I think it's also very important that once you're there, that you honor your pace because there's going to be a lot of external pressures. It's very important to get feedback, but also have to be very critical about the feedback that you get. You listen, but you also have to take into consideration what is relevant for you at this moment. You have to, I think, show empathy to yourself, not just to others or to the business that you want to create, but see like how much resources how much competency do I have? How much readiness do I have to take on this, given whatever circumstance? Um, and it's okay to take it slow. Um, we have, I actually studied my master's in between running the social enterprise, and it was okay, because I learned and I gained so much from it too. Um, it's also, I think, very important that you acquire a sense of balance. So I was sharing with Steve earlier that in the past, I was so hard on myself being an entrepreneur that my mindset was, it has to be work. It has to be financially sustainable. When um, after that story about uh, uh, the mother weavers emphasizing on our values again, it made me shift my perspective on um, social entrepreneurship or in what I do. So now I look at it really as my creative playground, you know, as an, as an outlet where I can unleash my creativity because it's a kind of work that gives energy back to me. It makes me feel alive. So from that sort of perspective and change of mindset, there's a, it doesn't feel like work. It, it's more of a flow. It's a natural flow of things and and usually when your energy is put in the right thing everything else follows right so impact follows profit follows all the all the checkbox in your and your and your and your criteria follows so so i think that's just important that um in every decision that you make in every step that you make it's always going to be a leap of faith but it's still very important that you're very intentional and aware of everything not just of who you work with and what you're working on, but also yourself and your limitations. That's fantastic. That's such a great way to wrap up the conversation. So, Anya, thanks so much for your time today. And thanks Thank to you. CQ University for hosting and to Impact Boom for making this.
conversation available as a podcast. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.